0: Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I have Redmond Weisenberger, who is the president, CEO, and chief nabob of Mises Canada, which, interestingly enough, and I think this was actually von Mises' suggestion himself, it's one of the few Mises organizations, the leadership of which is uh, secured by a combat to the death, or was it a (laughs) dance-off? You told me all about this. So no matter whether it was a dance-off karaoke or uh, biting your opponent's ear off, congratulations on your new post.
1: Actually, you know, it's that's where the uh, that's where uh, Kramer, that's where Seinfeld got the uh, Festivus, and the, the Battle of Strength was actually from Von Mises. So.
0: Oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because Von Mises yeah. actually was going to originally settle in Canada, and then he went, "Holy crap, it's MF cold here!" And yeah. he headed south. Um, that's a, a loose translation from the original German. Uh, yeah. So. So thank you so much. So you're the president of Mises Canada, Mises.ca. Just before we jump into the latest and greatest in Canadian news, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the organization?
1: Yeah, so uh, I formed the organization in uh, 2010. Um, we sort of, uh, you know, it was, it was very organic. I just sort of, uh, you know, called up, you know, Jeff Tucker and uh, Doug French down at Mises uh, USA. And, uh, you know, sort of threw it by them and said, would you guys mind if I start this organization? And they said it uh, wasn't a problem. Um, you know, I felt it was necessary to uh, bring the Austrian school up to Canada so that uh, we could start doing um, basically research, start analyzing uh, Canadian history from an Austrian perspective, look at the Canadian economic situation from an Austrian perspective. Because, uh, you know, with... with the push of nationalism, sometimes people won't uh, you know, they'll read something. Yeah, I guess there's just some idea that that an idea can work in one country but it won't work in another and, and that if you you're you know people you know some people don't understand that we have a Bank of Canada that, that operates just in the same way that the Federal Reserve does down in the United States.
0: And also I might say operates without an aesthetic sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, yeah. I you know well uh, yeah definitely it's it's not it's not as nice a building as the uh, as the Fed down in the States. I don't know if you've ever seen the photos of what it actually looks like in the Fed, but it it is it's monumental. It really it truly is sort of I the, do believe
0: that, that they reached deep down into the back of their couches, dug out some spare change and managed to spruce yeah. the old place up a little. Of course, it was originally an outhouse because they are taking a slow dump on a modern economy, but they felt that was too <laughs> obvious a metaphor. So. so let's turn to Canadian news, uh, much to the shock of my listeners who are used to a bit of a southerly perspective. We focus yep. on Venezuela and Nicaragua, of course. But um, yeah, so uh, yeah. what's uh, what's going on that's grabbing your interest uh, in in the Canadian political and economic scene these days?
1: Uh, well, these days, uh, I think uh, an interesting thing when you're looking at uh, environmental issues and um, specifically sort of this whole you know global warming movement that uh, you know I regard the green movement as one of the uh, biggest threats to freedom and liberty. Um, you know. To come around in a long time, uh, you know. In terms Stick of,
0: walking fork in green and it bleeds red. It's just Marxism yeah. with nature instead of the state.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And well, and also, they it, it's it's a real. If you look at the state coming into our lives and pushing into our lives, uh, the environmental movement and the green movement um, through things like um, you know restricting restricting energy production and, and various sorts of things. Um, this is where all the largest subsidies are going right now. Uh, that is where you know the the state is really um, you know pushing into our lives to a great extent. Um, but what not, I think, it's, sorry,
0: it, it's not it's not a hugely organic movement. People don't really understand that too much. Much like radical feminism, the radical environmental movement is funded uh, through the state, or funded uh, as has recently come to light through the National Post. Some of the Canadian green movement has been funded. As a form of economic warfare by foreign competitors who seek to slow down the production of Canadian natural resources in order to reduce competition. They fund grievance movements here to block the development of natural resources.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's uh it's competitors, but it's also um, it's it's uh independent foundations as well, right? It's charitable foundations in the United States. Uh you've got the Moore Foundation, the uh the foundation that was created by the founders of Hewlett Packard is founding it, is funding it, um, a Sierra Club, uh, the Tides Foundation, uh, there's a woman named Vivian Krauss who has actually figured out that about $300 million has been poured into uh, environmental activism um, and, and a great amount of it you know, specifically focused on things like uh, the oil sands, um, pipeline development, all these sorts of various, uh, various projects.
0: Right. And it's actually, this is, uh, Bill Gardner had calculated, uh, Canadian writer had calculated that it was about 300 million that had gone into feminist groups in Canada here as well. So it's really important to understand this is not, a, you know, um, a, uh, a guy with a can on a corner who's reflecting people's <laughs> genuine interests, but it is reflecting pretty heavily moneyed interests. And there's, of course, a huge amount at stake economically.
1: Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, and, you know, whether it's, uh, I mean, you could go into the you know, it, it's funny when people talk about things like peak oil. You know, what they don't realize is that there's a, you know, I, I mean, I don't believe in the concept of peak oil to begin with, but um, I, it, it, it's almost like they're trying to manufacture peak oil. You know, they're, they're, the especially in the United the United States restricts oil exploration across. It's almost impossible to get oil uh, exploration going in many parts of the United States. The best uh, geography off the coast of Alaska is basically off limits. Uh, it's the same thing in the Gulf of Mexico. Like you're, you're just not allowed to drill for oil in the United States. Um,
0: well, and this, of course, uh, is partly driven by the military-industrial complex because if America became more self-sufficient on oil there'd be far less reasons to have ridiculous amounts of weaponry, soldiers and navies and air forces out there in the Middle East and all these other kinds of exciting places in the world. There'd be far less excuse for, for foreign intervention, for uh, yeah. funding and, and UN involvement in all of these um, oil-drenched hotspots. So uh, it, it really doesn't have, I think, much to do with the environment, and just a way of keeping boots on—you know, green boots on the ground overseas, which funds a lot of people and keeps the population scared.
1: Yeah, and then uh, I think also when you look at these sort of um, – the the subsidization, uh you know a lot of governments also were looking for their next uh their next subsidy project, right? Um and this was obviously one uh that they could really sink their teeth into. You know, pour money into uh pour money into uh green energy projects. Um of course they get to greenwash their appearance, make it appear that they're doing something for the environment. Uh, all these all these various uh, all these various things that they like to do.
0: And, and one of the things that I always ask myself, I mean, as uh, you and I are sort of part of a radical fringe group of thinkers as well, yeah. so I don't mind that people are called radical or fringe or whatever, but my concern yeah. is always whether they're actually concerned with their gold or not. So I was just reading, this is sort of tangential, but I think it's related. Yeah. I was just reading an interview with Meryl Streep, who plays uh, Margaret <laughs> Thatcher in a new uh, film which, of course, is never going to deal with her politics or her philosophy, uh, but rather deals with her chatting with her dead husband, because that's moving rather than informative. And uh, she said that she, you know, because she was a big feminist, of course, in the 80s, uh, and she said, well, you know, I admired Margaret Thatcher for becoming one of the first heads of of a Western democracy, but she was on the right and I was on the left, and we could never cross that over, so I could never actually really genuinely admire her. In other words, she wasn't a feminist, she was a leftist. And that's something that I've always sort of... um, Uh, always sort of said that that, uh, feminism is just socialism with panties. And the Ah. same thing I think is true for environmentalism because any intelligent environmentalist would understand that human beings are going to need to use energy and resources. But if they were really interested in getting the most bang for their buck, in having the greatest maximization of the efficient use of resources, then they should be entirely for the free market. Nothing Mm -hmm. wastes resources like the government. Nothing pollutes like the government, whereas the free market, whoever wins is the person who can use the fewest resources to produce the greatest goods, and that is something which you don't really see. Beyond Lomborg, sort of half and half, he straddles between the sort of left and the right, but there mm-hmm. are not a lot of genuine free market environmentalists, which to me seems that again it's just socialism with a different uh, a different suit on.
1: Yeah, well, there's. Uh, I mean, that that's a good point to make. Uh, the the absolute worst. Environmental degradation and destruction that occurred in the the century occurred within the Eastern Bloc, Um, and you know you you might. I'll have conversations with people where they might say, "Well, I mean, what if what if somebody was polluting uh, the river or or a lake, and um, you know how how would that work if it was private?" Um, And what they what they don't seem to understand is that within Canada, say, every single body of water is owned by the government, right? It, it claims ownership over every single, there is not a private, uh, you know, leader of water in, in Canada, essentially. So right now, if something is being polluted, it means that the government is allowing that to happen, right? I mean, it's it's granted the rights, and it is not, uh, you know, it's granted the rights of the polluters to pollute the water. Now, of course, we've, we've seen these sorts of things start to pull back. Um, some might say that Well, it's because of environmental protection laws that these things happened. But if you look at uh, if you look at the long if you look at the long history of it, uh, air pollution, water pollution has been going down um, greatly since basically the, uh, you know, essentially the Industrial Revolution, when we were actually able to create enough wealth so that we could start to invest in things like, uh, you know, water, you know, cleaning water or or. or cleaning the air that uh, that comes out of, or cleaning the you know the smokestacks that come out of uh, factories and whatnot.
0: Yeah, I mean, and there's no question that the best way to ensure our environment, I at least for me, there's no question. The best way to endure, ensure environmental protection is to move as much property as possible into the hands of private citizens, because then they have that property. They want to maintain the value of that property. Anything which it damages or diminishes the value of that property is going to be met with. Um, uh, some sort of lawsuit or some sort of uh, criminal uh, charges. Um, you of course would have insurance companies who would be set up that would set up insur- insurance for environmental protections. And so, uh, so that I mean, to to get the hands uh, to get property into the hands of the private citizens is the best way to ensure that things won't get polluted. There's this weird idea that if you just, it's like this giant catapult with all society's problems. You just wad them up. And you put them in this giant catapult and you launch them over this wall into this big, mysterious land of Mordor called the state. And then you just assume that it's been solved. Hey, we've passed some laws. Hey, we've got the yeah. government to own some lands. Hey, we've created an environmental protection agency. And somehow you think that the problems have been solved. It really is. It's just it's it's primitive belief in, in magic. You may as well be doing rain dances hoping for a downpour.
1: Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing. uh, uh, Walter Block um, has done a lot of writing in on uh, environmentalism. Uh he used and, and when he had a um he used to be with the uh, Fraser Institute in Vancouver and he put out a book called uh, Environment and the Economy um a reconciliation. And within it he talks about the fact that um previously in the in the 19th century uh there were things known as uh, nuisance suits. Right and so you actually had a situation where if, they, um, if somebody had a house and uh, the, you know, a factory was polluting, right, if, if uh, soot was coming out of that factory uh, and, and it, it damaged a woman's clothes uh, that were on the line drying, um, they would go and sue – And it would be a nuisance suit. And this
0: would be like small claims, so you wouldn't need to have a lot of money. You just go, you know, write a couple of pages, pay a couple of bucks. And that. so it would be a sort of death by mosquito bites for these sorts of companies because lots of people, they wouldn't need. Well, when we think of lawsuits now, we think, of course, of of massive amounts of of time and and money. But this wasn't the case, of course, prior to government helping us out by taking over the uh, common law system.
1: Yeah, essentially, people would bring suit against the offending company. Uh, And it also worked with railroads, whereas, uh, because back in the day, you would have uh, coal-fired and uh, wood-fired steam engines. And what would happen is that they would, say, um, light the bales of hay uh, in a farmer's field on fire. And, uh, again, the person could sue, and then the railroad company would have to make the decision, well, are are we going to innovate? Are we going to come up with some type of technology that is going to allow us to not have this problem? Right. Or we are going to pay the suits or take the risk and, and you know, be able to pay off what, uh, you know, they make their own decision about it. Now, what's interesting is that, um, though, in the late 19th century, essentially what happened was the um, the uh, the judgments actually started coming in and saying that, look, for the greater good, uh, these people are allowed to pollute. So essentially what happened was the. Um, the uh, the state, I guess, through the through the power of the uh, you know the judiciary, began essentially ignoring people's private property, right? So right.
0: We, because the, the the railway companies were paying a lot more taxes and had a lot more political influence than some farmer in a field in Idaho.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And so and so essentially, um, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, these environmental problems came, you know, came actually from the ignorance or the or, or um, you know the the people not respecting property rights. Uh, and you do have situations in England where there are privately owned rivers right where um, where various fishing clubs uh, have actually owned rivers and they in that case where pollution did come down through that river, you would say um, they would sue and the, the pollution would stop and it would, the same case would be uh, you know with a with a river where that was going by a um, you know going by a uh, by a town and if the town, or or people within that town owned portions of the river, Uh, you know, they would have it tested on a regular basis. Um, You know, if a factory set up uh, at some area above and and wanted to use the water resources, they would have to negotiate with the the people who owned uh, those rights.
0: Right, Right. so Uh, when people say there's a problem with pollution, the first place, at least the first place that I look, and in oh, decades upon decade of looking, I've not found a single example to the contrary. When people say, well, there's market failure, you see pollution, you've got a problem, there's the problem of the commons, and so on. The first place to look is how the government has actively prevented the free market or the common law system from solving the problem. Because that's why the problem usually, almost inevitably, that's why the problem exists in the first place. So people say, you know, with the OSHA stuff that came out out of Rachel Carson's entirely false... Silent Springbrook out of the late 60s, all of this stuff which sprang up was the result of many, many years, decades, in fact, of the government actively siding with large corporations against smaller concerns for simple reasons, of political pull and uh, tax base. And so yeah. the common law system, which had dealt with damages to property and persons through pollution, had simply been throttled and not allowed to operate, and then you say, oh, see, there's this big problem with the pollution, we need the government to solve it, but it's only there because the government has prevented the solutions, the historical solutions from coming into play.
1: Now, as well, though, you know, to uh, a caveat to that, I mean, mean, you also have to wonder, you also have to question um, what is pollution, right? Uh, I think, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but when you've got a situation where uh, you've got you know green organizations and the government working with them to state that the fundamental building block of all life on this planet, carbon dioxide, can be termed a pollutant. You know, and and all of a sudden you can you can you can essentially you know control everyone's life through the control of the emission of, of carbon dioxide. Uh, you know, which I don't think is a pollutant pollutant at all. It's it's plant food. You know. Then you, you have to wonder, you know, because then, then you have to go because there are other things, you know, there's there are there are other types of of things motivating the greens. And, and well, it's, certainly, and it's, it's, it's
0: constant scare mongering. <laughs> let's just just for funsies, let's run through a few of the false scare scenarios that we have experienced over the course of our lives. Uh, global cooling uh, was one yeah. uh, that was good. We knew Ice Age was going to happen. Uh, running out yeah. of food, water, and oil by 1980. I remember that as part of my uh, my childhood. Uh, that was a pretty big prediction. Uh, as oh, the rain, if you remember, holes in the ozone layer. What, what what have you got?
1: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I was around for all those. Uh, and, uh, well, one, of course, was the whales. The whales are always in trouble. Um, yes,
0: the whales but, are always in trouble.
1: Which, of course, is an interesting... Uh, and, of course, the story of whales, um, uh, you know, the way Murray Rothbard puts it, he said... Uh, in the 19th century, there was whale communism, right? The, the problem with fish is that we're still in the hunter and gathering stage, right? There's no property of rights of, uh, applied to fish or to vast amounts of the ocean, right? There's no property rights there. And so you have everybody attempting, it's a tragedy of the commons. Everyone is trying to get the fish before everybody else, um, because if they can't get them, then somebody else gets it and makes profit, right? Now, whales, uh, in one case, uh, they were actually nearly hunted to an extinction But because, one, there was whale communism. Two, they were used for oil, right? The whale oil was one of the main ways of of creating lighting within houses. Now, what, of course, solved uh, the The whale problem? kerosene lamp. Kerosene lamp. The oil industry, big oil. um, And, I I mean, the Rockefellers aren't doing much good now. But, uh, you know, the Rockefellers, the Rockefeller oil company, Standard Oil, essentially saved the whales. You know, like, this is the thing. The whales were saved by technological, uh, you know, within the laissez-faire nineteenth, 19th, late nineteenth century, when there was radical improvements in, uh, you know, oil technology, kerosene. I think they took it, you know, they took it from some from somewhere of you know, ten dollars a gallon down to ten cents a gallon, you know, within fifteen years, right? And, and it completely replaced the whale oil industry, and you would see that the the whale population was recovering from that point. You know, by the time the 60s came around and, you know, all, Greenpeace was jumping in its boats, whales were already on the comeback.
0: Right? It wasn't right. And of course, uh, if you know, um, as, as everybody who sits next to you at a dinner party hopes, if you know anything about the history of Cod in Newfoundland, it's the same story. 400 yeah. years, so 400 years, yeah. uh, these people were able to hang on to their Cod and uh, to milk these stocks in a perfectly wonderful way. Yeah. And then the government gets in and starts setting quotas. And within 10 to 15 years the card is stripped bare and the entire industry has collapsed. Because if you're the guy, it's, it's like a farmer. There's a reason farmers don't overplant uh, over their crops. There's a reason farmers leave, leave their uh, feels fallow uh, sometimes so as not to exhaust the soil because you want to keep planting in it. And if you're a fisherman, you've grown up around the fish, you want to fish cod and you want to hand that business off to your son, you just don't overfish, And communities can find fabulous ways of dealing with this. Uh, of Through ostracism, through setting internal quotas that everybody meets, uh, social pressures, all these kinds of things. That's how you deal with resource. You, you make sure that the people who are dependent on that resource in the long term are the ones who have the most direct stake in controlling it. When the government comes in and starts setting all these quotas and uh, then the, the, you know, they have an incentive to set quotas as high as possible to get as many votes, and then everybody hands over their moral responsibility to the state. And next thing you know, the cupboard is bare, and doesn't look like those fish are ever coming back.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the Russia just before the uh, just before the Soviet Revolution uh, fed itself and exported wheat. Um, you know, within five years of the Soviet Union being formed and the and the communists taking over, they could not feed themselves. Right. They, they were importing grain. Um, and uh, and what I think is interesting, too, though, uh, you know, when you put it in a sort of when you sort of start looking at it from that point of view. In fact, the in fact, the uh, the sort of policies that the Greens would like to put in, you know, and, and the, the sort of the U.N. IPCC and the, the global warming movement would, would like to put in would actually lead to starvation. Right. This is this is the problem. Um, and then, then you can then you can go and get into the, uh, the discussion of their Malthusian worldview. Um, you know, they've been wrong, you know, the Malthusians have been wrong for 2000 years, but it doesn't stop them. You know.
0: Well, and if I were a green guy and I consider myself fairly green, it's an industry I worked in for about 10 years. So I consider myself fairly green. Uh, let's say that I was looking at big environmental problems. Well, a huge environmental problem is housing bubbles. Huge, huge, huge environmental problem, housing bubbles. I mean, think of the amount of energy it takes to create a house. Uh, um, all of the natural resources, the, the human labor, the, the, the driving everything everywhere and putting it all together, the energy that it then consumes. So to okay. create a house, is a massive, massive uh, impact, negative impact in many ways on the environment. So with 10% of U.S. houses standing vacant at the moment and, and you know, yeah. what is it, 25 or 30% in danger of foreclosure, I would say, well, look at the amount of energy that was caused by this housing boom and bust, the amount of energy wastage, the amount of environmental, all these trees cut down and all this. Yeah. And I'd say, okay, well, so what was it that caused the housing boom you go straight to central fiat currency right you yep. go straight to government policies and you'd go to fiat currency and if you really wanted to if you really if the, if the only thing that guided you was actually saving the environment you'd look at something like the housing boom you would drive it to its source and you become a radical gold bug but this is yeah. not where these people go because that's not where the funding comes from
1: well now you see gold doesn't work because you'd have to mine it right and then you, you know those rocks have rights essentially right I and mean, still you it's to uh, cheaper
0: to mine gold than it is to build houses all over the place <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, you know what's funny though about that, though, uh, just a small anecdote. I was running for city council last year, and uh, I ran into a guy who was campaigning at the same time uh, for the Toronto Environmental Organization, right? And uh, he was an actual Keynesian. I-, I couldn't believe it. I'd actually met somebody who said he uh, said he was a Keynesian. Um, but then uh, I started talking about the environment. And I said, "You do realize that this massive malinvestment that goes on wastes." Uh, resources monumentally right and you know when think about the environmental problems that that essentially that most people can identify with right or, or that that they think is a problem it's essentially wasted resources mm-hmm. right and um for an example uh you know if you want to look at race resources at a city level um the the recycling programs of especially, especially the recycling programs of municipalities are some of the most wasteful programs around and that's guaranteed,
0: yeah. because oh, you, yeah. You, you can do that just through a, a simple Misesian price calculation. If yeah. nobody is coming to pay you 20 bucks to pick up your garbage, or 10 bucks, yeah. or even a penny, if nobody's coming to do that, to recycle it, you know, without any further research at all, assuming free market, a free market situation, you know that it's costing more energy to recycle than it is to throw it out. Otherwise, people oh, would be coming absolutely. by to yeah. pick it up. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, well, the thing is, well, that's what I always note, right, is that... Um, is that whenever you put out a big piece of metal with the garbage, the next morning it's always gone. Yeah. Right? Somebody's, no, seriously, somebody's driving around with their pickup truck. They pick it up because it is worth it. to. It is worth their time, the cost of that car, the cost of their gas, to go around on garbage night, pick up all the metal, and bring it to the recycling place. Right? Here's,
0: here's another one that environmentalists should look at if they want it to be taken at all seriously. I mean, the radical environmentalists. It's yeah. very clear that debt is bad for resource consumption because debt allows you to consume more than you're producing, which means that you're going to be less careful about resource resource allocation. And so there is misallocation and there's also more allocation, uh, sorry, more resource consumption than you're producing, which is a net loss to the environment as a whole. So Hmm. national debts should be something that uh, environmentalists should be fanatically against. Uh, They should be for at the very least ironclad balanced budgets because otherwise the government's borrowing and spending a whole bunch of stuff, pumping up the money supply, people are buying stuff they don't need, which causes a massive environmental degradation. This is what intelligent environmentalists environmentalists who weren't ideological would be about. They would they would set yeah. You know the the happy, contented uh, breast milk-sipping sigh of Mother Gaia as their sole <laughs> northern star, and they would sail there no matter what. But that really, you never hear environmentalists talking about national debts and fiat currency because they're not that interested in the environment. Uh, they're interested in self-righteousness. They're interested in government funding. They're interested in blocking the progress of humanity. They're not particularly interested in the poor. It's like all of these um, idiots who said we should uh, boycott apartheid or we should uh, boycott Saddam Hussein's, as if boycotts don't just Uh, strip the poor of you know it's 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 fine to lose 20 percent of your income if you're rich it's not so much if you're living on two bucks a day so uh it's just people who are doing moral posturing rather than actually working from first principles to solve problems sorry that's the end of my rant
1: oh no not a problem well but it a lot of the uh and it was funny on youtube or no on facebook uh just somebody you know somebody years ago posted something that hellman's Hellman's put together, and I guess it was uh, because a lot of the environmental calls, um, you know, especially uh, around food, let's say, you know, they start talking about these things like, you know, 100 mile radius, radius. They start talking about a lot of it factors in a lot oh, of is this
0: way. Sorry, uh, but you get your food from the local. right?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. You know, buy local, local, the whole local board, movement, right? It, because it wraps in protectionism, right? It wraps in. You know, uh, it was strange, saying straight in the video, it said, you know, Alberta now imports $70 million worth of fruit. Like, well, uh, you know, six months of the year, Alberta is frozen solid. You know, we should we should look at the fact that we're trading with these other countries. And you our know, ice
0: banana trees are still not producing everything that we well, want. It's tragic. I
1: mean, that's I mean, that's what it is. Right. And that's the problem is that a lot of under this green umbrella that has has been created by the by the environmental movement um you can th- you can throw in every every sort of collectivist statist uh, protectionist <laughs> bigoted goal that you want to throw in there you know, um, you know yeah, they you should be the, they should be for the very orders. least
0: government involvement in the economy they should be for sound currency there should be all of these things which are actually uh, valuable they of course should be for the privatization of schools because the amount of resources that are poured into keeping schools heated and running for 12 years of a child's life when you really really do <laughs> not need that much education. If all you want is a government education, you know, it's six weeks and a six-pack, and if you want a real education, it might be a little bit longer, but it certainly wouldn't be. But this yeah. is the kind of stuff which, you know, to, to minimize resources, you simply need to privatize as much as possible, to minimize resource usage. But they're not interested in that, because it's just that okay. same old, same old, what is the excuse for more power over the people uh, well, that they, same yeah. old, same old.
1: They're fine. they're fine with tyranny, they just want to be the ones controlling it. Right? They have no problem with tyranny. They have no problem with with massive government intervention into the, you know, into the, uh, into the economy. And what, what was hilarious too, is I used to, uh, back when I had uh, more time on my hands, I used to debate with this one particular guy, um, about these issues. And, um, you know, he was, he, he was kind of funny cause he was sort of environmentalist, but he was for incinerators, right? He was for um, because right? incinerators, you know, waste to energy oh, yeah. where you burn. Yeah. He, he thought recycling was stupid too, but he, he said we should be burning it all, which is which is in fact in Europe, uh, where they actually don't have any extra land sitting around. You know, they actually have been incinerating their waste for years. They've been developing, they've been pulling uh, energy from. It. But here, here, of course, it's a, it's a no go. It's a non-starter that so you can talk about that. Um, but uh, but Europe know, is not the, quite uh, as
0: radically socialist as America. <laughs> I'm sorry, as Canada is. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, everybody looks at Europe as, as the big socialist melting pot, but, you know, a lot of the countries like Portugal and, and the Netherlands have legalized drugs. Uh, they have incinerators. They have private delivery of health care, which, of course, is unthinkable here in Canada. But, of course, Canada's socialist legacy comes more from people like Castro and Marx and less from the Fabian socialists of George Bernard Shaw on the ilk of the, 20th, of the early 20th century. So it's a much more radical oh, yeah. socialism that has occurred here in Canada in many ways than could be conceived of in Europe.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the I mean, the CCF, if you look at the CCF's uh, foundational document, they could you just the, the Regina CCF Manifesto or the, the Winnipeg Manifesto, so CCF means it's the pre-NDP guys, right? Oh, the CCF was your. Yeah, the Cooperative Credit Federation. I'm sorry, I'm blanking. It's the, you know, the nerves of being interviewed by yeah,
0: it's so so stressful, <laughs> so stressful. But then so the stressful. guys who yeah, drove the to. uh, movement towards the socialisation of health of, uh, of healthcare, and they're the yeah, ones who yeah. drove towards the welfare state, and then they morphed into the into the New Democratic Party, which is our equivalent of the public sector public sector serving wing of the Democratic Party in the U.S.
1: Yeah, well, the uh, the um, you know the yeah the CCF basically their manifesto if it reads it's almost word for word the Communist Manifesto. I mean, no joke. I mean, it is. It really is. You know, abolishing property, all these sorts of things. The, and then when you when you start to look more deeply at some of these people who were the the you know the, the key motivators behind some of these policies, you look at a guy like Tommy Douglas. Um, he was uh, he was very much in favor of eugenics, um, forced sterilization, uh, putting unfit people into work camps, all these sorts of things. Right. And and, I mean, we could do a whole nother talk on the Canadian. Well, that
0: comes just just by the by. This is one of the uh, the great tragedies of World War Two is that uh, the martial law was won, but the philosophical war was completely lost. A lot of the people who'd created the totalitarian hells within Europe uh, escaped the de- collapsing dictatorships and took up residence educating people in North America, and it was like, this is where the hippie movement and all that sort of mysticism of the 60s came from. So you had a whole bunch of people who came back from fighting socialism, took the GI bill, went to university, and were taught by ex-socialists on how to destroy their own economy now. Anyway.
1: Well, you had the, uh, I think it was the Frankfurt School, right? Who uh, Or the people who called themselves the Frankfurt School uh, came over from Nazi Germany in the 30s to the United States, and, and they what they did was they called it quote-unquote, the Frankfurt School, as sort of a, a dodge. you know. That, and so whenever they were quoting, saying, talk about the Frankfurt School, they were actually talking about, you know, hardcore socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it, Marxism. They were essentially saying they're Marxists. But they yeah, didn't and these want
0: people are constantly them. setting up these, uh, you know, tottering, destructive hellholes, and then just before they come out, they escape to some new hall of freedom and start that, you know, termite-biting, rodent-burrowing society yeah, collapsing yeah, well, process all over again.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's undermining the foundations of, of the free market, undermining. The, and, you know, if you look at um, this guy, uh, Antonio Gramsci, I mean, he sort of set out the, the the program, right? What he called it was the long march through the institutions, right? And he said, and he didn't, he didn't think that you could just have a radical overthrow of the government. He essentially said that you had to step by step go through the universities, the governments, all these sorts of different things, um, educating people. Uh, in these views, right, and, and the way I see it, many people are are essentially Marxists, but they just don't even know it. I mean, they're, they're well,
0: included. no, see, this is the interesting thing. I, I would I would change that a little bit to say that they're Marxists in the general social sphere, but yeah. they are anarchists in their private. Sphere. So if, they, if there was a law saying to, to people, here's how you have to marry, here's the job that you have to take, here's the education that you have to follow through in, and here's where you have to live, people would be like, oh my God, that's Marxism, that's totalitarianism, that's fascism, I'll fight it to the death. But as long as it's around broad social categories called other people or the poor or the sick or the old, they're perfectly happy with totalitarianism as long as it's removed from them. And, of course, it's double removed. A, it's politics, and B, it's all funded through debt so the taxes don't go up immediately to pay for it anyway. But if you ever try to put the same principles that they worship in the state in place in their own personal lives, their career lives, their romantic lives, their parenting lives, people would go ape. So, all, you know, I think all that the, the free market people are saying is, hey, you know that stuff you really like in your personal life? What if that was just life? What if that was just everyone? If you if you fight it like uh, to to the death in your personal life, why not you know fight it at least break half a a, a drop of sweat fighting it in the public sphere?
1: Yeah, well, William Gardner uh, again going back, to him, he he, re, he views um a guy like Trudeau, you know uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, you know who's one of the most popular
0: uh, Castro's pet.
1: Yeah. By, by the way, I have to go pick up my son soon.
0: Yes. Yeah. We we can stop in a few minutes. Just let me know.
1: But uh, pretty much now. But anyways, but Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, was uh, he calls him a libertarian socialist, right? So what uh, what Pierre Elliott Trudeau did, uh, he said, I've got to get the the, na- the government out of the nation's bedrooms. But then he stuck it everywhere else. Yeah, the the
0: government has no place in the bedrooms of the nations but rifling through your bank accounts, your uh, internet uh, service providers, your pocketbook, and all over your children's education. Just not in the bedroom. And this is the sad thing. It's like Canadians traded civil liberties for kinky sex permissions. I mean, it's just completely bizarre. What a bad deal. You get the kinky sex and you can keep your personal liberties so you don't have to do a trade of one or the other. Yeah, well, that was it, that was the promise of the '60s, though, right? I mean, it was uh, uh, hedonism in the flesh and enslavement in the economy, and that was just uh, a wretched, wretched deal.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, without without economic freedom, um, uh, you can pretty much kiss a lot of your other freedoms goodbye. I mean, right. if you don't. If you don't have economic freedom, there's, there isn't a lot more that you can do than hang around. And yeah, because
0: if you don't have control of your property, and particularly the property called the self, you don't have any freedom, and the, the degree to which the government infringes on that is the degree to which it all becomes academic. Yeah. So listen, you're going to go, but uh, let's give people your website again just to make sure people, you've, got, you've got meetups, you're running conferences, uh, and uh, you've got great resources on your website. It's mises.ca. Did you want to mention about anything coming up that you'd like people to know about?
1: Uh yeah, I mean, uh, depending on when this goes out, I've got the um, we've got our Mises meets in Toronto and uh, Ottawa. You can find those on Facebook and on the website Mises.ca. Uh, I'm going to be at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference from the uh, 21st, or the 22nd to 23rd of January, and we're bringing a guy named Kel Kelly up to uh, educate people. We're going to be doing a lot more of that, reaching out into into those sectors. Um, and then, yeah, we're uh, we're looking also this summer, we're looking to put together a uh, Mises University Canada or a Mises Canada U. Uh, and we're going to be bringing uh, teachers up from the States. Uh, we're going to be bringing teachers uh, in from, you know, from various parts of Canada uh, and educating people from around the world uh, on the Austrian School of Economics.
0: Well, fantastic, Redmond. Uh, it's very impressive. I hope people will go and visit the site and we will talk again soon.
1: Okay. Thanks a lot, Stefan.
0: Bye. Okay, bye. Bye.